Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. Before we move too quickly to the next thing, I just want us to spend some moments in prayer. In a room this size with this many people, the sins and the suffering and the sorrow that exists in this room is just overwhelming to think about. So I just want us to bring our stuff, bring our sins, bring our deepest sorrows to the Lord in this moment. I just want to lead us in prayer and just spend some moments crying out to the Lord. This is not a show. This is not entertainment. We are in the presence of the Lord with each other. And the Lord is here wanting to bless, wanting to set you free, wanting to heal, wanting to do great things in your life, in your family. And so let's bring Him all of our stuff. Let's cast our cares on Him now. Lord, You are a great God. You're a great creator. You're a great sustainer. You are powerful and sovereign and good and gracious. We just want to spend some moments in your presence, crying out to you, finding in you all of our hope and all of our hope for help and for joy in this world of sorrow and suffering and sin. Lord, our grief is great. Our sins are great. Our sorrow is great. We have so many things that weigh us down, so many burdens that are on our backs, and we just want to come unload them on you because we know you're good and you're gracious and you're forever faithful to your people. Thank you for inviting us into your presence. Thank you for making the way so that we can come into your presence and cast our cares on you. All this is owing to your grace. We've done nothing to deserve to be here in your presence in this moment. We've done nothing to earn your favor or to get in your good graces. We have failed you, O God. We have sinned and thought and word and deed. We have failed you in ways that we would be so embarrassed to show to others. And yet you know everything. You know everything about us. And yet you call us to yourself. You call us to yourself not to leave us as we are, but to change us and renew us and to make us mature and holy to progress us in sanctification. And so would you do that in this moment as we enter your presence, as we enjoy your presence, as we bask in your goodness and your grace, would you change us? Would you mold us? Would you shape us into the people that are called by your name? And so Lord, I pray for my friends that are in this room that have deep sorrows, that have heartaches that are unutterable. God, I pray with your grace with your balm, with your healing, that you would come to them, set them free, and help them to hold fast to the anchor. We thank you that you've given us an anchor in Christ. We thank you that it's not our hold on you that keeps us, but your hold on us. So Lord, thank you for holding on to us, for holding us fast and for not letting us go. 
for if you would let us go, we would be a thousand miles away from here. So good and gracious King, we cast our cares on you because we know that you care for us. And we thank you that your burden is easy and your yoke is light. We thank you that your commands are not burdensome, but that you give the power to obey. And so we pray you'd give us that power by your Spirit. Empower us to live a life that is fruitful and faithful to you. Help us to do what we could never do by ourselves. We pray now in this moment as we open your word, as we listen to you, that you would indeed speak to us. Here we are, Lord. Your servants are listening. Our ear is bent to your word. Our hearts are bent toward your truth. We want to know you. We want to know what you expect of us and what you require of us. And we'll count it a joy to follow you because you're a good and gracious king because you've done everything necessary to make us your children and you have loved us with an everlasting love. And so, Lord, set us free by your love to do all manner of radical obedience in your name. Lord, open your word now to us. Show us your glory and show us what you value so that we might follow you. Help us and cleanse us and purify us for your name's sake. We pray you do all this for the good of your church and for the glory of your name. We pray it in the great name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Well, join me in opening your Bible to the last book of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi. In our passage-by-passage study of this book, we're going to be looking today at Malachi chapter 2, verse 10, Malachi chapter 3, verse 5. I have the English Standard Version that I'll be reading over us. You follow along in whatever translation you have. What a privilege. What a privilege to read God's Word together and to study it together. Malachi chapter 2, verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence says the Lord of hosts. 
So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of God. May God write its truth on our hearts. Well, if I had to summarize the burden of this passage, I would say it like this. God takes marriage very seriously, and Jesus is our only hope. God takes marriage very seriously, and Jesus is our only hope. Here are two epic, sturdy, foundational truths that we need to be reminded of week in and week out. Marriage is worth it, and Jesus is a great Savior for sinners. And so let's meditate on the problem that God confronts in His people, and then we'll see the solution that God Himself initiates in the person and work of Jesus Christ. First, the problem is that God's people were divorcing their wives and marrying idol worshipers. The more general problem, according to verse 10, is that God's people are being faithless to one another. They were treating God's creation, their own brothers and sisters, with contempt, and they were profaning the covenant. We all have one Father, and we were all created by one God, and so why would we ever be faithless to one another? That's the question Malachi asked. If we all have the same Father, and if we all have the same God, then why are we faithless to one another? But the more specific problem, the more specific way that they were being faithless to one another is in their relationships in marriage toward their spouses. Notice at the end of verse 11, God tells us how His people have profaned His sanctuary, how they've been faithless to one another. He says they have married the daughter of a foreign god. In other words, they were blatantly disobeying God's commands not to take wives from the nations around them. The issue wasn't race. The issue was not ethnicity. The issue of intermarriage is not about race. It is not about ethnicity. 
The issue was worship. The nations around them worshipped pagan gods. They were idol worshippers. And so to marry women from these nations was to turn away from God and to turn to worship those same idols. The people of God were taking the most sacred and intimate human relationship and they were tainting it by marrying unbelievers. God says it is as if you were marrying the daughter of that foreign god. When you marry those unbelievers, you are marrying the daughter of that foreign God. But not only that, not only were they marrying these women from the nations around them who were worshiping idols, but verse 14 tells us that to do this, they were divorcing their Jewish wives. They were divorcing the wife of their youth. They were divorcing their wives to marry these unbelievers. And the people of God have the audacity to wonder why God is no longer pleased with them. This is the whole book of Malachi just shows the foolishness of the people, and they're just, they're just wondering how in the world could they be that faithless? It's not them, surely not. They're not even aware that they are wearying God with their so-called worship. This is a frightening thought, is it not? It's sort of the, the, the scope of Malachi and the people's foolishness in light of the Lord's rebuke of them, it is it is incredibly frightening that we could go through the motions of worship, that we could call ourselves God's people, assuming that God is fine with us, thinking we are following Jesus, and in reality, we are so despising what God loves that our slow to anger, patient God is wearied by our so-called worship. Is that not incredibly frightening? We could go around claiming to be God's people all the while, wearying our God. Friends, this is why it is so vital that we listen to and submit to God's Word. Because God's Word makes clear what God values. You see, we will deceive ourselves. We will justify our behavior like these people in Malachi's day were doing, right? Right? But when we expose ourselves to God's word, to God's truth, we are confronted with what God values and how we need to change. And how gracious of our God to do this, right? To not leave us to ourselves, but to speak to us about what is true and lovely and holy and right. And so in this passage, God teaches us just how much he values marriage. If there were ever a day in time with the value of marriage, it is the one in which we find ourselves in. Now, talking about marriage today is full of danger and heartache. All of us have been touched by the pain and the sorrow of broken marriages. All of us, even if not directly ourselves, all of us know people that we love that have felt the pain and the heartache of failed marriage. And add to the pain of this subject, the moral confusion about marriage in our culture, and this is a powder keg that is dangerously close to the fire. And instead of just ignoring and skipping over this subject, which, friends, can I be honest with you for a moment? That's what I'd rather do. I'd rather just skip over it, deal with something else, 
that would be the path of least resistance. But instead of skipping over it or ignoring it, we need to bend our ear to God's Word and not just listen to the opinions of our own thoughts or the opinions of our culture. God has told us everything we need to know about the value of marriage. Even in a passage like this, in, in, tucked away here in a minor prophet at the very end of the Old Testament, God says some amazing things about how seriously He views marriage. And so to help us bend our ears to God's authoritative voice, I want to highlight for us five truths about marriage that we learn from verses 13 through 16. Five truths about marriage that we learn here from God in this passage. Now, these truths obviously apply to every married person here today, but friends, what I want to say is these truths also apply, and they apply significantly to those of you who are not yet married. These truths give us a proper view of what marriage is and why it is so important to God. And so I'm zealous for our our teenagers and our preteens that are here today, that you understand what God says about this subject, what God says about the value of marriage. And I think that will save you from so many heartaches along the way. Here's number one. First truth about marriage. Being faithful to God means being faithful in marriage. Being faithful to God means being faithful in marriage. So we talk a lot about being faithful to God. It's one of the grand goals that every Christian should have, to be faithful to our Creator, to please Him. And so what does faithfulness actually look like? Well, one of the ways that we are to be faithful to God is by being faithful in marriage. That is, being faithful to our spouse. Verse 11 teaches that unfaithfulness in marriage... Adultery, divorce, abandonment, abuse, neglect. Unfaithfulness in marriage is an abomination in God's eyes. It, it profanes the Lord's name. Because marriage is God's idea. Marriage is God's creation. It's His institution. And He's designed it to display the relationship between Jesus and the church. To be unfaithful in marriage is to be unfaithful to God. We keep marriage vows not just for our spouse. We keep our marriage vows to God, unto our God. Notice what marriage has to do with worship in this passage. In verse 13, Malachi says the people were covering God's altar with tears and weeping and moaning. Why? Because God was not accepting their offering any longer. God is not accepting their worship. God is rejecting the people's worship. Why? Verse 14, that's exactly what the people ask. But you say, why does he not? Why does he no longer accept our, our worship, our offering? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. In other words, you cannot worship God if you are unfaithful to your spouse. Do you see that right on the surface of the text? God says, I'm not accepting your worship. If you are unfaithful in your marriage, it is impossible. Unfaithfulness in marriage is incompatible with true worship. Faithfulness or faithlessness in marriage is also faithlessness toward God. 
no matter what kind of offerings you are bringing to God. Husbands, it's honestly, it's you and me who are most addressed in this passage. It was the husbands who were, who were being faithless in their marriage. And if you haven't yet come to terms, husbands, with 1 Peter 3, 7, I hope you will come to terms with it right now. Because this is the most challenging verse for Christian husbands, for Christian husbands who want to be faithful in their marriage and who want to be faithful to God. Listen to what 1 Peter 3, 7 says and see how it relates to what Malachi is saying. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Why? Why live with your wife in an understanding way? Why treat her respectfully? Why care for her? So that your prayers may not be hindered. What? God will not listen to your prayers if you're a trash husband. That's what he says. God will not listen to your prayers if you do not care for and live understandably with your wife. Listen, you can't cheat on your wife and abuse her emotionally and ignore her needs and then come to church on Sunday and worship God. God ain't having it. Because being faithful to God means being faithful to your spouse. You cannot worship God and be unfaithful to your spouse at the same time. Of course, how can any of us worship God then? <laughs> who, would, any, any, who, who of us would dare come before God then? Because if we've been married for any length of time, we have all failed at being the husband or wife that God desires us to be. Which is why in just a moment, we're going to see the glorious truth in this passage that Jesus is our only hope. Jesus offers forgiveness and cleansing and purifying to those who are faithless, to all of us. Well, that's the first truth. Here's the second truth we see in this passage. Marriage is a covenant witnessed by God. Marriage is a covenant witnessed by God. And so verse 14 communicates just how deeply God cares about our marriages. It says, The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, who is then described at the end of verse 14 as your companion and your wife by covenant. And so here's one way that we could define marriage. What is marriage? Marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman that is witnessed by God. Marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman, not between a man and a man, or between a woman and a woman. Let's don't get confused here. Marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman that is witnessed by God. You see, all covenants had to have witnesses. Witnesses made the covenants valid, right? We do this same thing today. If you were to write a will you would have to have several people witness you sign that will, that saying that they saw you sign it. The will isn't valid if it doesn't have witnesses. And so who is witness to the covenant promises of marriage? Well, all the people who were gathered there for that wedding, but also God Almighty. When we get married, we get married in the sight of God. 
It is as if God records the marriage in the annals of heaven, in the archives of eternity. This is why marriage is so sacred and special and extremely valuable because it's not just a covenant between two people, but it's a covenant a man and a woman make with God, before God, in the sight of God. And thus, the wedding vows are not just empty formality. They're not just pageantry that we do because that's what everybody does. They are terms of the covenant that we are making in the presence of God. And thus, the promises of our vows should not be discarded as if they mean nothing. Our spouse is our covenant companion, God says. Our covenant companion. Ultimately, we stay married till death do us part. Not mainly because we're madly in love with our spouse. Although that's ideal, friends, let me say that clearly. What we strive for is to stay married because we're so in love with one another. That is indeed what we pray for. That is indeed what we strive for. But that's not the main reason we stay together. We stay married because we made a covenant before God. Here's how Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it. He said, at the moment of marriage, it is not your love that sustains the marriage. Are you listening to this? This is so countercultural that I promise you it's going to be hard to embrace this. It is not your love that sustains the marriage, Bonhoeffer says, but from now on, the marriage sustains your love. Do you hear that? It's not your, it's not your love that sustains the marriage. It's the marriage that sustains the love. And so, friends, the the I'm no longer in love with that person reason for getting a divorce or for separating, whatever it is, is not a biblically permissible reason for divorce. Because I no longer love them. Because I fell out of love with them. That's not a reason. You decide to keep on loving because you are married. The covenant sustains the love. Friends, God cares deeply about our marriages. It is a covenant to which He is the ultimate witness. Well, Here's the third truth about marriage that we see in this text. Number three, marriage is more profound than we realize. Marriage is more profound than even I can describe right now. This is what this whole passage is saying, but look at what verse, look at what verse 15 says. Did he, that's talking about God, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Marriage is a profound mystery. I think Malachi here is just echoing the words of Genesis chapter 2 where God takes the man and the woman and He makes them one flesh. He takes two and makes them one. God unites the married couple in such a way that He gives a portion of His Spirit in that union. He gives a portion of the Spirit to that one flesh union. You see, marriage is not merely physical or legal. Marriage is a spiritual union. A married couple is united in the deepest and weightiest of ways. God is the primary actor in this. 
the man and the woman say their vows and they commit themselves, but it's God who's the primary actor in marriage. As that couple says their vows, God is doing this unseen work of making the man and the woman one and giving them a portion of His Spirit in their union. To understand marriage, we we have to grasp this. To guard our marriage, we have to remind ourselves of this often. We are united in the deepest of levels with our spouses. And Jesus said, Jesus said, this is so profound, that man should not separate what God has joined together. Jesus said this union is so profound, so holy, so important, so valuable, that man should not separate what God has joined. And notice, why does this one God make the two one? Verse 15 says, God is seeking godly offspring in marriage. This is interesting, isn't it? I certainly don't think that this means that marriage's primary purpose is procreation. After all, this text speaks of companionship. This text speaks of covenant. But rather, I think what this is pointing to is God's good design for the family. God desires for man and woman to be fruitful and to pass on the faith to future generations. Godly families are God's design to fill this world with His glory. We have kids Lots of them. And we raise them up and we send them out to be a blessing to the nations for the glory of God. This is God's good design for the family. Marriage is incredibly precious and primary and profound in God's purposes. Marriage is incredibly precious, incredibly primary, incredibly profound in God's Here's the fourth truth we see in this passage about marriage. Number four, God hates divorce. God hates divorce. Now, verse 16 is really difficult to translate. I don't know Hebrew very well, but I'm told by the utmost Hebrew scholars that verse 16 is very, very hard to understand the meaning and so you can look at different English translations and you can see how they've, they've made all these decisions about how to translate and make sense of exactly what God is saying in verse 16. So for example, if you have a translation different than the ESV, I have the ESV in front of me, but if you have a different translation, it probably says something like, I hate divorce, says the Lord. But others like the ESV translate the hate as belonging to the spouse who divorces his wife. It's To divorce is to hate, is kind of the sense of how the ESV uh, takes it. But friends, either way, either way you decide how to translate this, isn't this entire text telling us this truth that God hates divorce? God does not here speak favorably about divorce, does He? He actually says the man who divorces his wife covers himself with violence. You see that in verse 16? But we know this to be true, don't we? We know this to be true. Few things in life are as painful as divorce. I'm told that divorce is more heart-wrenching than even the death of a spouse because divorce carries with it all kinds of betrayal and shame and guilt and loneliness. Now, divorce is so common today that it is hard for us, I think, to even hear this truth that God hates divorce. 
But we should expect this to be the case, shouldn't we? should expect this to be the case with God. God is holy, right? Divorce is always owing to human sin. Divorce is always owing to human sin. There's no such thing as a holy divorce. And so God hates sin, and God created marriage, and therefore God hates divorce. Now, we know from other passages in Scripture that God sometimes permits divorce in some really specific and rare situations, and He does so because we live in a broken and sinful world, God's permitting of divorce is an expression of His love and care for people who live in a world that is broken and hostile to Him. But God never encourages or commands divorce. It is not His will. Because marriage is designed to be a picture of Jesus and His church, marriages are designed to last. Just as Jesus doesn't cast away His sinful bride, so we are not to cast away our spouses. God hates divorce. And I assume those of you who have experienced the pain and violence of divorce hate it as well. And you want other people to hear this. We should never treat it flippantly, never treat it casually. Divorce will happen in a broken world, and there's wonderful hope of forgiveness and cleansing in Jesus. But before we get there, one more truth about marriage, and it's the most practical one of all. Number five, marriage must be guarded. Marriage must be guarded. Notice that this is the command from God in both verse 15 and verse 16. In verse 15, because of how profound marriage is, God says, So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. And then in verse 16, because God hates divorce, God says, So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So twice God calls us to guard ourselves in this way, to guard our marriages. And so marriage is so precious. It's like a precious diamond that deserves to be guarded. It deserves to be attended to. So let me share a few practical ways that we can guard our marriages. What does it mean to guard our marriages? Well, here's a couple of ideas toward that end. First, for those who are not yet married... Do not marry an unbeliever. Do not marry an unbeliever. You guard your marriage on the front end by not disobeying God and marrying someone who does not share your faith. God is clear about this in His Word. How can a follower of Jesus make a covenant with someone who's in darkness? Do not be unequally yoked together. So, Friends, make sure the person you marry shares your love of Jesus and desire to honor Jesus above all. This will save you from 10,000 heartaches in your life. Don't do it no matter how cool you think he is, no matter how much she pays attention to you. If she or he is not following Jesus, do not get romantically involved and certainly do not marry them. Just to tell you how strongly that I think this, how clear I think this is in God's Word, and therefore how, how strongly I hold to it, as a pastor, I will not marry a believer to an unbeliever. I will not officiate their wedding. I will marry an unbeliever to an unbeliever 
because I believe marriage is a common grace of God for the good of the society. I will certainly and joyfully marry a believer and a believer, but I will not in no way have anything to do with officiating an unbeliever to a believer because God is clear that this is against His will and it will cause heartache and pain and shame on your life. And so I urge you, I warn you, do not marry an unbeliever. Make sure. Secondly, prioritize your marriage at every stage of your life. For those who are married right now, let me say to you, prioritize your marriage. I mean, we're, we're listening to a text that God is saying to worship me, to be faithful to me, is to be faithful to your spouse. Like this is part of what it means to follow Jesus. And so therefore, prioritize it at every stage of your life. No matter what life situation you find yourself in, guard your marriage by investing your time, energy, and effort into it. The way to avoid temptation to be unhappy with your spouse is to cultivate the love and romance and companionship of your spouse. Husbands, date your wives. Give her undivided attention. Communicate with her. Wives, pay attention to your husband. Speak well of him in front of others. Support him. Grow in grace with him. Husband and wife, don't prioritize the kids over your spouse. Listen, in fact, I believe the best way to raise your kids is by showing them the value and significance of a healthy marriage. And so I think so many parents have it backwards where they say, well, we've got to prioritize the kids now during this stage in life. And in prioritizing the kids, they neglect their spouse and then they teach their kids something unhealthy about what marriage is. And so you aren't loving your kids well if you are neglecting your spouse. Plus, your spouse is going to be there long after the kids are sent out. So prioritize at every stage your marriage over your job, over your goals, over your hobbies. Guard your marriage with your life. Guard it. It is worth guarding. Third practical idea of how to guard is this. Be fully committed to a local church where you can be held accountable and cared for when marriage is hard. It's one of the best pieces of practical advice I could give you for your marriage. Be committed to the local church. Because it's here in the midst of these people that we can help bear one another's burdens. And we can help encourage one another when life and marriage gets really hard. There are all kinds of studies that are done that show that couples who don't have a healthy support system around them are much more likely for their marriages to end in divorce than those who have the encouragement of a church family around them. We need each other, and this is one of the most practical ways that we can help one another follow Jesus. Attending regularly, investing in the relationships in the church is an often neglected means of guarding our marriages. And so guard your marriage means fight for it. It's worth protecting. Guard it with your life. And let me just give a quick clarification before we move on. I want you to hear this. None of what I'm saying this morning about the value of marriage is meant to encourage someone to stay with an abusive spouse. Please hear this. If you are experiencing physical or sexual abuse of any kind, please get help from the authorities immediately. In an abusive situation, 
It is certainly necessary to separate from your spouse for a time in order for some healing and justice to occur. Please get help. Yes, marriage is valuable, but God expects us to separate for a time so that justice and healing can occur in those situations. So to summarize chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, God rebukes His people for being faithless in their marriages. The problem was that they were treating casually what God takes seriously. And the solution to this upheaval of values is found in what God promises in chapter 2, verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 5. God, to His sinful and wayward people, promises to show up and judge and purify their evil. How they were treating marriage is the problem, and God promises to send the ultimate bridegroom to right all their wrongs. So verse 17 shows that the people were wearying the Lord by permitting and allowing and encouraging evil. They were calling good evil and evil good, and they don't see God at work among them, and so they assume He's uninterested in them, and so they just do whatever feels right in the moment. Sounds kind of like our day and time, doesn't it? But God says in chapter 3, verse 1, that He will send His messenger to prepare the way before Him. In ancient times, when a king would go somewhere, he would send messengers ahead of him. Those messengers would prepare the road. They would remove anything that would clear the the path for the king. And they would make sure the people were ready to receive him. And so God says, I'm going to send a messenger to prepare the way. And of course, we know who this messenger is. The New Testament says that this promised messenger is John the Baptist. Matthew 11, Mark 1, Luke 7, all quote this verse from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 and apply it directly to John the Baptist. And so God says, I'm going to send my messenger to prepare the way. This is John the Baptist. But not only will a messenger come to prepare the way, but God says, I myself was going to come. I myself am going to come to my people. I'm going to, he says, come to the temple itself. This is one of the lesser known Christmas prophecies in the Old Testament, but it's a clear prophecy of the coming of Jesus, who is the messenger of the covenant, the one in whom you delight. He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And of course, Jesus did come. He took on flesh and he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And notice what God says he will do when he comes. Chapter 3, verse 2 says, He will come like a refiner's fire. He will come like a fuller soap. He will come to cleanse. He will come to purify His people, His bride. Specifically, verse 3 says He will come to purify the Levites, the the priests, so that their offerings would be offered in righteousness. And notice when He comes, what will He do? Verse 4. Look at verse 4. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. And so the evil people in Malachi's day were bringing their offerings to the Lord, but they were not accepted. They were flooding the Lord's altar with tears, but God did not answer them because of their wickedness. And so what does God promise to do for His people? He promises that He's going to send the one who would purify their offering and cleanse their wickedness so that their offering would be pleasing again. He'll come and purify so that they can worship Him 
in holiness again so that they can offer pure and right sacrifices to Him. And friends, that's what Jesus did in His perfect life and substitutionary death and powerful and victorious resurrection. Jesus purified His people. He took on the sin of His people and He took it on Himself and He bore the punishment that we deserve for all the ways we have been faithless, for all the ways we profane the Lord's name. Think about it, friends. Any offering that you could offer, any offering that I could offer in my own strength would be totally tainted by sin. You could give your entire net worth to God today. You could give up every activity or person you enjoy to serve Him. And apart from Jesus, it would be an unacceptable sacrifice because it would only compound your sin because all you can offer to God is filthy, dirty rags. However, friends, when we offer ourselves and our resources and our worship to God through Jesus, trusting in Jesus and His cleansing sacrifice, we can offer pleasing sacrifices, pleasing offerings to our God. This is what Jesus does. He cleanses and purifies filthy things and offers them to God on our behalf, offers them to the Father for us. This is what Jesus came to do. This is why He's the solution to our sin problem. This is why He is our only hope. And notice that it's God Himself promising that He's going to do this. God Himself is the initiator of the very offering that would cleanse and purify us for His namesake. This wasn't our plan. Like We didn't wake up one day and say, God, will you do this for us? We were 10,000 miles away from Him. God initiated this. God did this for His people. He promises to send the delightful one to sanctify us. But He also promises that Jesus will come in judgment. That Jesus will come like a refiner's fire to judge the wickedness and the evil of His people. Notice chapter 3, verse 5. says that God will draw near for judgment and that He lists out these various evil things that His people were doing. But notice the last one. He's going to draw near for judgment on those who do not fear Me. He's going to bring judgment for those who will not turn from their sins and trust in Him. Jesus came to purify and redeem those who would trust in Him, but He came to bring judgment on those who would reject Him, on those who would turn away from Him. And so I urge you today, friends, I urge you today, trust in Jesus alone as your only hope today. Because listen, He is your only hope. Our sins are great. Our sins are many. But God's mercy is so much more than our sins. He is rich in mercy if you'll turn to Him right now. Let's pray together. Oh God, You are rich in mercy. Our sins are many. Your mercy is more. Your grace is abundant and free. And so God, I pray that You would help us all to turn away from our faithlessness, to turn away from our sin, and to trust in Jesus alone. We thank You for reminding us of these great truths We thank You for the sanctity and holiness of marriage. God, I pray for the marriages in this room. I pray for the hard conversations that need to be had this afternoon. I pray for husbands to repent of ways they have been faithless. And I pray for wives to do the same. I pray that You would heal and restore marriages in our church family, but also in our extended family. 
I pray that we could be the light and the hope to see marriages restored and healed for Your glory. And Lord, I pray for our, our teenagers and preteens here today. God, I pray that they would grow up in a church family, but also in, in, in families that just love marriage and just exalt the value of husband and wife loving one another for the glory of God. And that that would create a whole generation of people faithful to their spouses. People who are honoring You in the way that we are faithful to our marriages. We need You, God, in all these ways. We are dependent upon You, desperate for Your help and Your hope. And so, Lord, would You meet us here and would You change us? We pray You do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.